You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number 50. I'm your host, Emily Carney. We at Mother Good believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. Our content is judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. Hello and welcome to episode number 50 of the Mother Good Podcast. This is new and exciting because we've never done video before, so apologies in advance if there's any glitches or if our lighting and camera quality isn't the greatest. This is the the very first time that we're doing it. Uh, And for the 50th episode, I thought it would be really fun to have a chat with one of my really good childhood friends, Melissa Wetzel. We've known each other since we were, what, three years old, I think. Old. Yep. <laughs> uh, just another thing that I'm I'm dragging her into. But it would be really fun, I thought, to talk about the history of motherhood. Uh, Melissa has a background in HR. That's what, she, what she's currently working in right now in psychology. And she's working on her MBA. And she's also a mother to little ones in heaven. And uh, I just thought that she would be a really good person to just have this kind of chat, uh, both from a psychological standpoint, standpoint and an anthropological standpoint on motherhood, just to kind of get rid of mom guilt that a lot of us have when we don't feel like we're measuring up to the modern standard of what it means to be a mother. And also just to put it kind of into context of women, what they've been doing for thousands of years versus what moms are doing currently. Because I think a lot of times we always measure ourselves against either the Instagram mom or our own moms or our grandmothers. And we don't really realize uh, in our the day-to-day living of being a mom that motherhood has been around for centuries. And to put it even more into context and into a better context, I thought it would be great to just kind of look at the history of it and then also dive into um, more ancient history, modern history, and then also uh, shame, which is a big aspect of motherhood and seems to have always been around. So Melissa, uh, thanks for joining us on this experiment today. So maybe you could just tell everyone a little bit about yourself and uh, feel free to take some jabs at me too, if you. <laughs> <laughs> um, as Emily mentioned, you know we've known each other since we were three years old. We lived on the same cul-de-sac, so we got into some hijinks as children. I specifically remember uh, home videos, mud pies, uh, me fabricating stories of a burglar in your garage. That's always the classic one. Um, fights like sisters. Um, so all the fun things that you know you do growing up, and I always love that we stayed in touch, of course, and we have very, you know, different paths, but, um, you know, we always come back to, you know, our, the same values that we share. Um, and of course that friendship that we've built upon, um, I am getting my MBA right now. I'm at USC. Um, I've been in HR for a lot of my career. Um, my background initially was in psychology and I wanted to do research, but, um, that just wasn't my calling. I've been in corporate America since I was 18 and I really felt very at home in business. Um, however, um, I, as Emily mentioned, um, you know, I did have a miscarriage. And so, and I, you know, even though I'm not officially considered a mother, um, it's is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, I have friends who are mothers, my sister, I have a lovely niece and um, kind of what we're going to talk about, um, especially the shame aspect. 
is something I think that no matter what your background is, it kind of unites women all together. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of digging into this and you know talking more about it. When I asked you to do this episode a little over a week ago, which was completely last minute, as with a lot of things that I tend to do, it's funny because I just kind of had a flashback to our childhood when I decided I wanted to make movies with our camcorder. (laughs) I don't even remember how old we were, like 10 or 12 or something like that. And you were just so game to do that. And here it is, what, like over 20 years later, and you're still just, sure, I'll do this random episode with you <laughs> and yeah. you're down for that. So I really appreciate that. It's, that's really cool. Oh, okay. So for the intro, we wanted to play for you, uh, this, um, it's a clip, I guess, uh, the, the company called card store, they actually posted a fake job interview for what they called the interview for the world's toughest job. And I just wanted to play this for you because I think a lot of you will resonate with it. Over the camera before? Yeah. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the job to get started with. It's not just um, a job. It's sort of probably the most important job. Uh, the title that we have going right now is Director of Operations, but it's really kind of so much more than that. Responsibilities and requirements are, are really quite extensive. Uh, first category for the requirements would be mobility. This job requires that you must be able to work standing up most or really all of the time, uh, constantly on your feet, constantly bending over, constantly exerting yourself, a high level of stamina. Uh, uh, okay. That's a lot. For how many, like, for how many hours? Uh, 135 hours to unlimited hours a week. It's basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm sure you'll have a chance from time to time to maybe just sit down here and there, yeah? Uh, you mean like a break? Yeah. Uh, no, there are no breaks available. Is, is that even legal? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, like, no lunch? You can or... have lunch, but only when the associate is done eating their lunch. Uh, I think that's a little intense. No. no not possible. That's crazy. Now, this position requires excellent negotiation and interpersonal skill. We're really looking for someone that might have a degree in uh, medicine, in finance, and the culinary arts. You must be able to wear several hats. Associate needs constant attention. Sometimes they have to stay up with an associate throughout the night. Being able to work in a chaotic environment, if you if you had a life, we'd ask you to sort of give that life up. No vacations. In fact, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and holidays, the workload is going to go up, and we demand that with with a happy disposition. Uh, that's almost cruel. <laughs> that's almost a, a very very sick, twisted joke. But when there's time to sleep, or oh, no time to sleep. Yeah, all-encompassing, all almost. That's exactly right. 365 days a year? Yes. No, that's that's inhumane. That's that's very insane. The meaningful connections that you make and the, the feeling that you get from really helping your associate are immeasurable. Also, let's cover the salary. The position is going to pay absolutely nothing. Excuse me? No. Nobody's doing that for free. Yeah, pro bono. <laughs> completely for free. No! What if I told you there's someone that actually currently uh, holds this position right now? Billions of people, actually. Who? Moms. <laughs> it's so funny when you listen to it because no one would ever actually accept that kind of job when you're just, you know, when you have the job description be just like any other job that exists. But then for moms 
we just do it and then don't even think about it. And then when you realize that that is what they're talking about, it all makes sense and clicks. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I love, so I remember seeing it when it first came out, but listening to it again, like you said, it just, if you don't know what to expect, you're like, well, what kind of terrible position is this? I mean, who would ever take anything like that? It also reminds me, I think it was Benadryl that had a commercial about like, there, you know, when you're a parent, there's no sick days. You know, your kid can have sick days, but you're not allowed to have any sick days. And so it just, it really, you know, hones in on the fact that it is a 24 seven job. And yes, there's obviously a lot of great things that can come out of it, but you know, when it's just you and significant other, sometimes there is no significant, significant other. I mean, it is a tough, it's probably the right, it's probably the toughest job to make sure that your child is raised and turns out to be a functioning adult. <laughs> Definitely. There, there's a New York Times opinion piece that I came across uh, about a year ago. The title is uh, Early Motherhood Has Always Been Miserable by Jessica Gross, which isn't the best title, but I'm sure every mom has felt that at some point in early motherhood. Uh, but it was pretty interesting what she was talking about is that there's always been two diametrically opposed concepts of motherhood that dominate conversations in America today. And just as we were saying at the very beginning that there's Instagram influencers vision of the ideal mother with the perfectly groomed and smiling children, uh, that everything always looks perfect. And then there's the gritty real talk of comedians and writers like Ali Wong. And I'm not sure if you've heard of like the scary mommy, those sorts of uh, type of more raw motherhood uh, stories. And so uh, the the opinion piece talks about how there's been tension between the ideal and the real for over 200 years. And there's been some sort of version of the pristine influencer mother that has been pushed on American women since the 1800s. And in her opinion, she said that that's always been a lie because if you look back through the diaries and journals of middle and upper class women during that time, you'll see that they've always been talking about the difficulty and reality of motherhood ever since the idea took hold that women were supposed to feel fulfilled by their maternal roles. So we'll have that article linked uh, in the show notes and also reference it throughout this episode if you're curious about reading what the diaries of these women are. But as we'll mention later in the episode too, you know, that only captures what the upper and middle class women and mothers uh, were experiencing and not really the lower class, uh, which is a really important aspect to look at as well. And Melissa, I know that you recently found a uh, a Washington Post opinion piece that was talking about something similar. Yeah, it's amazing, you know, the literature that's out there, and we don't even think about it, um, you know, having all of this at our fingertips. But um, I actually came across this um, again a little while ago, and we'll link this, um, you know, article as well. But it's the idea, you know, of a good mom should always be busy, selfless, and cheerfully obedient. You know, it's kind of peppered throughout history and culture. Um, I do want to note though, they say peppered throughout history and culture. Really though, as Emily said, the last 200 years, um, this idea of like the you know perfect mom coming to the fore, and we'll dive into a little bit more later. But um, you know, Sharon Hayes, um, she's a sociologist, and she wrote a book in 1986 called *The Cultural Contradictions of Motherhood*, um, which really shows that the definition of a proper parent, of proper parenting, excuse me, has always been slightly out of reach. Um, keeping mothers um, off balance and striving for something that really is not attainable and something that has just been exasperated with social media. And this isn't to bring down women who utilize social media, especially if you know, they're doing their thing, trying to make money. Um, 
It just, I think for a majority of people, it's something that they cannot reach themselves. Um, I do know of a couple of accounts that really hone in on the, you know, mothers should always be busy, selfless, and cheerfully obedient. Really the whole self-sacrifice if you're a parent. And yes, there is self-sacrificing when you are um, a mom, but I look at someone like my sister who is completely self-sacrificing. Emily, I would say you're the same, you know, a lot of moms are, and you to constantly be cheerful, I think is um, reaching a, is a goal that you can just never reach. There's no such thing as being happy 24 um, seven. And I think that women would be driven mad if we really try to achieve that, to be honest. So Those are really good points. And I like to, that you mentioned that there's no, nothing wrong with that, that perfect mom lifestyle, or if you are an influencer or something like that, that I think that is a really good disclaimer that we should put out there that, you know, this is just our opinions and our reflections. And also that we're not judging any particular mom because there are the the Pinterest type moms. Like I, I know someone who is a Pinterest mom and she truly enjoys and loves and thrives in that. And I'm really impressed with that. And so I think that's awesome that she can be that Pinterest mom, but a lot of us aren't that way. And it's important that we don't feel guilty because we aren't living up to those Pinterest mom standards. Again, like not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but just that for the rest of us or for the majority of us who can't do that, we shouldn't feel guilty because we aren't that way. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I think that that's a really good intro for uh, then diving into our first point, uh, looking at the historical look, uh, uh, taking a historical look at motherhood and just looking at, okay, well, how have moms been doing their job as a mom since the beginning of history, which I always had a gut feeling about what moms did, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years ago. Uh, but I never was really entirely sure until I just decided to do some research actually for this episode. Uh, and that's a, another disclaimer that we should probably give us that we're not, we're just doing this amateur, you know, we're not historians or that sort of thing. And, and everything that we pulled from online, yes, they are from really good reputable sources, but again, a lot of it's opinionated or some of it, we just don't know and have the full story with, um, but since the beginning of time, it, it does seem like that women have always worked and that being a stay-at-home mom is more of a modern-day phenomenon. And uh, there's a Br Britannica encyclopedia entry called Women in the Workforce. And it says that for much of written history, that agriculture was always a main occupation for both men and women, but that the heavy physical labor uh, was not just confined to men and that women actually did a lot of physical, heavy physical labor and such as grinding grain by hand in a stone quern, drawing and carrying water, gathering wood and churning milk to make butter. And the only time women got a break from these sorts of heavy labor activities was when a woman gave birth, which is crazy to think about. And digging a little bit uh, deeper into specific time periods that during hunter-gatherer times, and this is from an entry in the Anthropology Oxford Research Encyclopedia called Hunter-Gatherer Women, I thought that it was pretty interesting that women would be responsible mostly for gathering the plants and that men would often hunt game or meat. And it does get into a lot greater detail in this article, but they did say that it was tribe specific on what women did as opposed to men. For example, some women in some tribes actually did join men on the hunts to assist. 
in various capacities, whether it was like a tracker, those sorts of things. And women who lived in coastal communities, they would fish just like the men would, which I found pretty interesting. So there wasn't really like one universal occupation that a lot of or that that women had during the hunter-gatherer stage. But it's just kind of interesting to note that women did as much as they could, it just as the men did. So it wasn't just kind of like women staying at home and then men going out to be providers and then women just so isolated and alone at home. And another thing uh, that I thought was really interesting to note was that uh, that the hunter-gatherer women, they often maintain strong cooperative partnerships with closely related females, usually mothers and sisters, to optimize the household production. And so whenever a mom couldn't care for her children, then you know there would be another woman in the community who could come in and, and look and take care of the children. And that the concept of alloparenting, which uh, Merriam-Webster defines as an individual other than the biological parent of an offspring uh, performing the functions of a parent, also known as daycare nannies or babysitters. (laughs) So alloparenting has actually been around for hundreds of thousands of years. So it's not just a modern concept that moms might need a nanny or daycare or babysitter to have to go out and do something else. So I thought that was, that was really interesting as well. So um, I'm not sure, Melissa, you want to chime in on, on any of that. I mean, the history is fascinating when you really look, um, you know, the, for how long humanity has been around and how short of a time we really have talked about what the perfect mom, perfect parent is. Because um, as you said, you know, women were very involved um, in the day-to-day life of running the house, not just running the household and raising children, but also being active in helping um, their spouse out. I think it's also important to note, especially that even later on, especially during the Industrial Revolution, which I know we'll, we'll touch upon Um, but women, especially of lower classes, were not given the luxury to just do nothing, you know, especially when people, the great migrations to cities, you know, you think about how women were, um, working in factories as well. Um, so, you know, to kind of just keep going on that uh, thread, I mean, there's a lot to alloparenting. Um, I kind of did a little, I'd, I'd heard of it, but I never really, you know, delved into it a lot. Um, but there's a lot of fascinating information and, Again, I think it's worth noting that this is something that we've, I think, throughout you know, history of humanity, this was the norm, more or less. Um, you always have exceptions, um, but you know how much we've changed as a society and how we viewed parenting, um, especially when you turn, you know, you look at when um, during the Industrial Revolution, when we started getting better nutrition, people started living longer. How that really changed things for us. Um, I kind of wanted to dive in a little bit to, you know, some examples, if that's okay. Um, I don't want to do, you know, talk about ancient Egypt um, for a second here. Um, so ancient Egypt is fascinating. And, you know, everyone's heard of it, but um, they're one of the you know, societies at the time where women had um, probably the best rights of any other civilization um, during that time period. Um, you know, women could own land, initiate divorce, own and operate their own business, become scribes, priests, seers, dentists, doctors, um, you know, men were still dominant. You'll still read about that. And, you know, they held uh, the most important roles. But as a general rule, um, there is evidence that women also had authority even over men. Um, you know, we can, always, we can always like link some of this information as well. But I really think the takeaway from this is that women weren't confined to just the home, even 
back in ancient civilizations where we think of women not having as many rights. Um, you know, obviously this is a um, Western perspective that I'm coming from, um, but you know, women today, we consider ourselves having the most rights of any time in any point in history. And that may be true in a lot of ways, but women, you know, had autonomy at different points in their lives. Um, ancient Egypt is a classic example of that. You know, they obviously still took care of the house, um, but they were free to leave their responsibilities to a servant or other female family members and pursue interests outside of the house. Um, ancient Israel is another one. Um, you know, I think you found this here. Um, it was from Oxford University um, entitled uh, 11 Things About Women in Ancient Israel. Ancient Israel, you probably didn't know. Um, and I didn't know either. So this was actually a really fun read. Um, you know, women were responsible for transforming raw materials into food and clothing. These are just some highlights, of course. There's a lot going on. Um, women may have had significant amount of control of the household's material resources. They're most likely named their children other than the fathers. They worked as midwives, medical specialists. Um, you know, women were even prophets. You look at the Hebrew Bible, you have Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, the you know, unnamed prophetess of, um, excuse me, of Isaiah. Um, they're all women identified as prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and a lot of that's always glossed over, especially if you take, you know, take into account religion. Um, people always look at it as a very male dominated um, area. But women were there. Um, women had a presence. And I think that's important to know. And, you know, we always ask ourselves, why are we bringing this up? Um, because I think a lot of women get stuck, um, especially today with social media involved and other medias as well. Um, that they have to be in this box in order to be successful or to be viewed successfully, um, that they are selfish if they pursue interests outside of, you know, their children and their home. Even women who work feel guilty for leaving their kids or maybe putting them in daycare. Um, some women don't have the luxury to feel guilty because they're the sole provider. So I think it's always good to look back at our history where we came from, because that tells us a lot um, and again, these are just again, classic examples. You'll find them all over. Um, you know, you can always explore other countries as well. Vikings, uh, the Viking history has a very interesting, um, you know, take on how women in their society was as well. So um, moving on from that, though, um, Emily, you want to take uh, women in Middle Ages? Do you think you found that as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's interesting that you mentioned the Vikings because my husband and I are watching uh Gosh, now I'm blanking on it. Uh, I think it's oh, The Last Kingdom is actually a pretty good oh, show. Yes. I don't know yes, if you that show. That we've been uh, binge watching it after the kids go to bed a few days a week. Uh, but basically, the the women, at least according to the show, and I've, I haven't done like a ton of research, but it seems like the women were allowed to fight alongside the men, and it wasn't a big deal at all. You know, they're just fighting, <laughs> which is kind of awesome. So, but I think that that really is a really good point that you brought up. Like, why are we talking about this? It is to help with the mom guilt because when a lot of us moms and I fall into this trap all the time, we think that, you know, to be the perfect mom that we always have to be there present in our child's lives 24 seven, or at least a good chunk of the day. And we feel guilty when we're doing something that's other than being a mother, but then we, we think of the traditional, and I put traditional in quotes, we think of the traditional mom as being there all the time, it, you know, 100% of the time for your children. But then when we look back at these examples that we're giving in ancient times, that, that it's rarely been the case in the history of humanity 
that women have been able to just sit and be there for their children 100% of the time because they had lots of jobs to do. <laughs> and yeah. it, it was, uh, I thought it was crazy, even in ancient Egypt, that women were responsible for brewing beer for a while. I was like, oh, I just never associated that with something that, that moms would do. Um, but yeah, go, going on to women in the Middle Ages, this was kind of interesting to dive into this aspect as well. So it, it, women in the Middle Ages, it's a very complex um, subject to dive into because the Middle Ages lasted for so long. There's different periods of the Middle Ages and a lot of things happened. And a lot of it depended on where you lived too. So that obviously, um, what, you know, there was a lot um, of variation in that aspect as well. So women held the positions of wife, mother, peasant, artisan, none. And they were able to have leadership roles uh, when they did decide to enter a convent, such as an abbess or queen regent. That that was another type of uh, leadership role that some women, obviously, only if you're royalty, you could <laughs> have that kind of authority. Uh, going into um, the non, I guess, non-traditional mother, because I guess we could say that, you know, nuns are spiritual mothers. So that that's actually an important aspect to look at. So starting in the fifth uh, century that women could enter a monastery and that there is actually a lot of really famous uh, nuns that lived during the middle ages. One is Hilda of Whitby. She was an influential on a national and even international scale. And she was abbess at several monasteries. And I guess a lot of Kings even came to her for advice because she was famous for her wisdom and then there's Hildegard of Bingen. She was a German Benedictine abbess, writer, composer, ph- philosopher, Christian mystic visionary, and polymath. I had to Google this because I didn't know what that was. I guess it's just someone who knows several subjects very well, such as Leonardo da Vinci. And then there's also theologians uh, that lived during the Middle Ages, really important theologians. There's St. Catherine of Siena and St. Teresa of Avila, were now recognized as doctors of the Roman Catholic Church. So even though these aren't mothers and I guess the traditional sense of having biological children, they're still mothers of you know, spiritual mothers, those sorts of things. Uh, those who were biological mothers, they had a lot of jobs as well. You know, spinning was a woman's craft, as was brewing. Uh, interesting to note. And that married women were often expected to help in their husband's business. So it was a partnership where they both worked in their husband's business many times. And that a lot of women, there are instances that they found of women having their own businesses independent of their husbands. So that's, that's kind of interesting to note as well. And then going back to the Washington Post opinion piece that we that we mentioned earlier, uh, the author mentions that for centuries in Europe, that child rearing was a socially devalued task and often outsourced to wet nurses, nannies, and boarding schools. And then it wasn't until uh, you know recently, in the past couple hundred years, that breastfeeding was uh, a, you know there's a really big push for breastfeeding and affectionate mothering, and it fostered something called the cult of true womanhood. And then in Puritan New England, that raising children was about guiding their spiritual development and mothers uh, were supposed to follow the rules set by authoritarian fathers. And that gave rise to what's called like a moral mothering, urging moms to trust their instincts to bring out a child's inner goodness. So it's called all kind of interesting learning about the different, uh, you know, the different movements within motherhood, because then we can 
recognize those ideals or ideas, I guess is a better word for ideas in our head. So when those start to crop up, we can think, oh, well, maybe that's, I wonder if that's true, or maybe that's just hearkening to that, that, you know, thought of motherhood back, back in the day or back hundreds of years ago. Yeah. I want to just touch one really quick. Like I found it so crazy that women brewed beer. I think we should just <laughs> like, now we don't have to talk about it, but I just love that. I mean, you think yeah. of like how that has become a man's domain and you think of cooking as well. Like a lot of the top chefs, um, not so much anymore, but you know, they usually they were men, but you were always told like, you know, the kitchen is a woman's place and it's kind of how that's mm-hmm. flipped on its head. So props to all the beer um, brewers for women back in the day. I think that's so crazy. <laughs> I'm sure a lot um, of bros would be surprised at that, you know. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that. oh yeah, and there's so I mean, you think of like your tavern wench, not to get crass on it, but you know, it's what all that entailed. And I'm sure brewing beer was part of it. Um, I'm talking about turn on that. I don't have a citation for it specifically, but um, you know, especially because when you consider who did it. So right. um, I just thought that was great. Um, so women, we can do whatever we want. Um <laughs> nothing's too nothing's out of our reach here. Um I wanted to kind of, you know, you've mentioned the New York Times piece, and um, I think it's also, you know, something that should be mentioned, uh, you know, for thousands of years, you know, children all started to work when they were six or seven years old. Again, it wasn't really until life expectancy again, first started in Western civilization, then later um, other areas caught up um, where, you know, kids had the luxury of being home. Not all classes obviously could um, indulge in this. Um, even today, that may not be the case all over the world. Um, so. This obviously is still a very, you know, this is a Western perspective, but we are in America um, and you'll still find examples, you know, all you know, throughout the world of similar things happening with women. Um, and I think media nowadays, too, has, you know, kind of caught up and shown us um, where the trajectory is of how parenting is. And um, women, I think that's a great unifying factor. Women are so different. We all have different needs, different backgrounds. Um, but I think when it comes to motherhood and, um, you know, how we are looked upon, um, as people and how women should act in the home, I think that is a very unifying thing for women across the board, more or less. Um, you know, and that kind of brings us into, you know, a modern look at womanhood. Um, did you want to start this off or do you want me to go ahead and do that? Oh, you can, yeah, you can go ahead and take that one. All right. So modern motherhood, this is, while history is great, um, it's always because we live in the here and now, um, this is always, I think, where things get fun. Um, because again, we have, I t- mentioned the Industrial Revolution, um, you know, changed um, the work situation for both men and women, um, you know, whereas the hearth and home had been the center of production and family life, industrialization changed the locus of work from home to factory. The role of women in the family workforce did not change overnight, obviously, but um, for the first um, time, many families worked together in factories as teams. Um, and it really wasn't until the late, uh, excuse me, until the mid 19th century under the role of the male as the good provider emerge with women taking over most household and domestic tasks. Um, this transition may have stemmed from the growing humanitarian protests against the harsh treatment of women and children in early factories. I also want to note, though, to that um, as people's incomes rose and middle class came about, I think advertisement really also started to have an effect on how we started viewing things. That is a whole separate discussion um, that we could probably talk ad nauseum about. But um, And I think that's really where early media came into play for families and how women started to be perceived. 
So up until that point, you had obviously philosophical books, learnings, teachings, you had the church, um, but advertising, we can never, you know, minimize the impact of how that affected things. So, you know, just to kind of cap that off really quick, there's also legislation, um, most notably in Britain, raise the minimum age for child labor in factories, it set limits on working hours for women and children and barred them from certain dangerous and heavy occupations. Um, so women were engaged primarily in domestic tasks, um, such as childcare, and men went to work, being the sole wage earner. Um, you know, on the surface, this is not, these aren't bad things necessarily. You know, having children not be worked to death in factories, not bad. Having women not be worked to death in factories, also not bad. But there's always these unintended consequences, <laughs> of course. So what we ended up having is, you know, it really reinforced the men, again, the man as being the sole wage earner in the family um, and his traditional position as the head of the family. Um, so, you know, just a lot to unpack there, of course. Um, you know, I don't know if you have any thoughts you want to add to that, Emily. Yeah, it's, it does seem like from everything that I was reading that it really seems like the the idea of the traditional mother really is stems from this time period that we're talking about right now when the men would more work outside of the home. And then just as you were saying, because of the laws that were passed and and also just because of advertising or maybe just a combination of everything. And then women would just more stay in the home. And that is what I I think, at least it seems to me, in, in my opinion, from my perspective, that what most moms, when they think of traditional motherhood, they think of this time period that we're talking about right now. And going back to the New York Times opinion piece that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode by Jessica Gross, that uh, you know, uh, uh, she gives a little quick history of the expectations of mothers throughout the the centuries and the modern era. So she says in colonial America that women helped run the family farm or small business, and the older siblings or servants raised the younger siblings. And it wasn't until the 19th century, just as just as you said, Melissa, that when the economic production moved outside of the home, that this cult of womanhood, as historians call it, emerged. And that it was this idea that men worked and that it was morally superior for middle-class women to keep home and the family pure. And that women beginning in the Victorian era were then expected to find exclusive fulfillment in their children. So this is really, as, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, this is where it's at, I think. This is where a lot of us get trapped in our mom guilt because we're like, well, this is how moms are supposed to be. This is it. This is it. And it's crazy that this is, just it for one moment in all of motherhood history. You know, we just talked about ancient history and how even from the beginning of time, hunter-gatherer, you know, ancient Egypt, ancient Israel, um, the Vikings and all, all these sorts of things, all these different jobs that mothers held. And then, you know, fast forward to modern time, it's the single moment in time, uh, you know, the 19th century that we created this, uh, ideal version of motherhood. And then that's where we place our mom guilt on, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah. The Victorian era is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> I mean, we take for granted so much of what happened then, you know, including obviously we had two world wars, all, all of it stemmed from the beginning, you know, the Victorian era and the politics that were there. And that includes the family. Um, and we're still, again, I go, you know, early advertisements towards women, um, it's all from the Victorian era. And there's obviously good and bad no matter where you go. But 
Um, Victorian era is definitely, like you said, Emily, where this all really began of how we kind of see the modern mother and we've come so far since then, but in a lot of ways, you know, we're still in this um, weird zone of, you know, hyper mothering, um, especially if you work, um, you know, that's kind of jumping ahead a little bit. So I want to re- refer um, to the Washington Post article, you know, which saw the 20th, 20th century saw um, scientific mothering, um, which encouraged schedules, letting babies cry it out rather than soothing them and sound familiar to any moms here. Um, and it caused emotional distance. <laughs> that era was followed by child-centered mothering, later criticized as smother mothering. The Goldbergs, by the way, is or a great parenting. <laughs> yes, about the great smother. <laughs> or the precursor to the helicopter mom, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. Exactly. Um, yep. Exactly. And, of course you're and then there's the, the benign. Yep. Oh, yeah, then sorry, there's the, the benign neglect of the 1960s. And I have this great Jerry Seinfeld quote that I'd love to play for you. Uh, I don't know how many of you are Jerry Seinfeld fans, but uh, this is from his Jerry Before Seinfeld uh, series on Netflix, which is pretty funny. But he's basically talking about how he grew up in the 1960s. And this is just kind of to reinforce how during that time period, for whatever reason, it was really in vogue to neglect your children. (laughs) (laughs) My parents, they didn't even know our name. They were ignorant. They were negligent. We grew up like wild dogs in the 60s. No helmets, no seatbelts, no restraints. Cookie crisps. It's not like cookie. It is cookie. I was either eating 100% sugar or airborne. (laughs) Okay, Jim. So that just kind of encapsulates uh, how different each different time period parented or mothered their their children. You know, we we go from the Victorian era, which was, uh, you know, just always doting on your children to then this 1960s, which is just complete neglect of your children. <laughs> yep, yep. I, I think of, I mean, this wasn't 1960s, but we talked about the no seatbelt thing. I just remember a picture of my uncle, my mom's oldest brother. I actually want to say this was 1961, to be honest. Um, him as a baby in a car and he's just sitting in a box and it's like hanging from the back. And anyone who's older listening to may know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, I asked my mom, like, what is that? She's like, that's a car seat. I was like, just oh my gosh. Like, she's like, yeah, you just stuck him in a box. And I was like, well, I feel like I granted technology wasn't the same as we are, but you think of you know, safety standards. I mean, you know, you're like, well, do they not care about the children like they did? They, they do now, and it's just it's a different mentality, and it's crazy again how we are influenced, especially by media. I think media really played a role in these different types of trends of how we parent and what type of parenting comes out and what's accepted and what's not accepted. Um, you know, and that kind of you know leads us into I think our our third part here. Um, I don't know if you want to start off first, but um, I can um, go on if you have any thoughts you want to add to that. Yeah, I think just just closing off, I guess, the all the different time periods that we've touched on. And we really haven't, even though we've talked about a lot, we really have just glossed over just examples of different time periods because motherhood is, and the history of motherhood obviously is so extensive and just dependent really on where you lived and during what time. 
And we just are trying to give a little taste of how it's been so different across the centuries. Um, And then also just the extremes, you know, just as we were talking about on one extreme, there's a 1960s. And then on the other extreme, it's just the constant doting. And it, it just kind of brings to mind of when we're trying to think of, well, what is being a good mom then? Because that's all what we're about at Mother Good is trying to be a good mom, not a perfect mom. So obviously, the Victorian era was probably trying to be too much of a perfect mom. And then the 1960s, and or if you're neglecting your children, that's being a bad mom, you know, so there, there are two extremes. And it always, uh, I'm always reminded of Aristotle and his idea of what virtue is. And he always talks about virtue being the mean between two correlated extremes. And uh, I know that we as human beings like to be super black or white or this or that. And that's how we just like to be in general. But this whole Aristotle concept of being more in the middle is a lot more peaceful, at least for me. And it's a lot more achievable because then you realize, okay, well, obviously neglect is bad. Obviously like a hundred percent doting is not really possible for, for most of us moms. So it's kind of, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. And that's always been like a really big relief to always come to me, at least to always come back to this, this Aristotle concept of what, of what virtue is. And, and just as you were saying that, that leads us into the third point that we wanted to talk about, uh, which is, shame surrounding motherhood. And I know that that's a really big aspect surrounding motherhood as well, because moms just like shaming each other and, and women. I know that Melissa, you made that point. That's not really a mom, just a mom thing. It's a woman thing too. Right. Yeah. I mean, especially, so I'm not officially a parent and I see this happen, whether I read it in the news um, or on someone's Instagram, or I hear from a friend, my sister. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. Even I've told my, asked my sister, why are you doing that with my niece? Like, why are you doing that? And I'm her family member. I think that speaks volumes of how we, as a society, feel about telling other people how to parent. Now, there is a caveat to this, and I was actually just thinking about it um, when I'm thinking about women um, versus women and the whole shame culture, because in certain cultures, it is perfectly acceptable to have, especially your elders, get involved and tell you how to raise your children. So again, just stressing that this is by no means perfect. And you live somewhere else, as Emily said, and you grew up in a different time. Um, You know, the expectations are different. Um, So this is not to, you know, pile on any culture. Um, But in America, I think it goes beyond the cultural aspect. It's not culture. It is pure shame. No matter what a mom does, you know, even women will bring each other down in that area. So, you know, I just always ask the question, you know, how does this lack of female consensus, consensus hurt women as a whole? Especially when I said earlier that if you think about it, motherhood, even if you're not a mom, um, it doesn't even, it's not even about maternal instinct. You know, how this is something that can should unite women um, no matter what. Um, and clearly it doesn't. There's a lot of people's strong opinions on how you should raise a kid. Emily, I don't know if you have anything you want to share, if you feel comfortable sharing, but I just, I, I know that there's always a lot of mom shaming out there. So please feel free to chime in if you got your own story here. Definitely. Yeah. I, I think that that's a, that's a really important part to talk about the difference, the cultural differences as well. I, I guess I always viewed 
the cultures where the the parents and the grandparents did get involved since i know that tends to be what it what it is in a lot of asian cultures is that to me always is more advice but again like i'm not from that culture so i can't really attest to it maybe it would really annoy me if it, i was that a part of that culture so advice versus judgment you know um but again you probably if if you did and this is obviously i i don't know anything about that that culture but i don't know maybe if you did want to branch off and do things differently maybe you couldn't and i guess that is something that we do have more of the freedom in western and western civilization to be different than our parents and grandparents we don't have to do things their way uh but then a lot of times i think that they think that we should do things their way. And then that's where a lot of the, the tension comes in. But I wanted to read uh, a quote from Brene Brown uh, about motherhood and shaming and just uh, women in general too. So this is from an excerpt from Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. And I really loved it when I, I read this in her book. So she says, you don't have to be a mother to experience mother shame. Society views womanhood and motherhood as inextricably bound. Therefore, our value as women is often determined by where we are in relation to our roles as mothers or potential mothers. Women are constantly asked why they haven't married or if they're married, why they haven't had children. Even women who are married and have one child are often asked why they haven't had a second child. You haven't had your kids too far apart what were you thinking? Too close? Why? That's so unfair to the kids. If you're working outside of the home, the first question is, what about the children? If you're not working, the first question is, what kind of example are you setting for your daughters? Mother shame is ubiquitous. It's a birthright for girls and women. But the real struggle for women, what amplifies shame regardless of the category, is that we are expected and sometimes desire to be perfect, yet we're not allowed to look as if we're working for it. We want to just materialize it somehow. Everything should be effortless. The expectation is to be natural beauties, natural mothers, natural leaders, and naturally good parents. And we want to belong to naturally fabulous families. Think about how much money has been made selling products that promise the natural look. And when it comes to work, we love to hear she makes it so easy or she's a natural. Wow. (laughs) I mean... I think that speaks to, like you said, anyone, and it's worth noting too. I mean, I know the beginning part of that. I, I get the question, you know, why don't I have children? Am I going to have kids? Like, when do you plan on doing that? You're getting older. Um, these seemingly rude, inappropriate questions I get asked just feels natural for people to say. Um, I've never heard that quote. I, I love that. I love it. Um, Brene Brown, she, I think, was spot on. And it really speaks to how women just are not able to make it no matter what. And you think of celebrities and celebrity culture, which I could, you know, part of me wants to argue that they're the ones that really also help, you know, with this and reinforce this idea. However, they also get mom shamed and criticized. And there really is no win, no matter what you do, no matter who you are. um, I think it's just, you know, fascinating that no matter what, women just can't win. I forgot who it was I was speaking to uh, a few months ago, and I was making a comment about this whole aspect surrounding motherhood shame. And I was just making a comment that I wonder why uh, men don't really experience it that much. But um, actually, maybe it was you that I was talking to. <laughs> now that I'm saying it out loud, um, maybe you'll remember this conversation if it was you. 
basically that men are more shamed uh, in regards to their career, which is interesting to note. So it's like, oh, what do you do? Oh, oh, okay. You, you're this, you know, X, Y, Z or, oh, okay. And, and, And then men kind of feel guilty when, if they're just this or just that. Um, and then they feel pride if they have a really important job title or position or something like that. So for them, it's not necessarily, it's not fatherhood. Uh, it's their career. Right. And as we said, it kind of goes back to the 1800s sole wager earner notion that we talked about. And um, actually, I don't know if you heard me, I think it was us that was talking about it. I know I've talked about it with my significant other and he mentioned that to me. There's, again, we, we don't have time to go into it and hope, you know, men and their role and how that's changed as well and expectations. But the pandemic has brought out something interesting, especially for mothers that I've noticed. Um, and I've seen headlines about this. Um, you know, women also do not demand men do more. Um, sometimes women also take it upon themselves to just carry the burden by themselves. Women are doing, during the pandemic, majority childcare and chores and probably working too. Um, and it's, you know, everyone's dynamic is different. Um, so this is not to judge someone's dynamic, but um, I always ask, you know, my friends, well, have you asked your student other if they're going to help? And some women may not be in a position to ask that. Um, so, you know, there's a lot, a lot there that I think we need to, as a society, support moms, especially the ones that may not have internal familial support or spousal support. Um, because especially the pandemic has really highlighted, I think, the inequities between the haves and have nots um, and who's surviving and who's really just barely scraping by. That's a really good point to make sure that you vocalize it. I know that that's a common recommendation that's that's made to women in general is that men can't read your mind. And so it's really <laughs> important to vocalize and, and say like, this is what I need and just be very specific about it too. I know that since my husband and I, obviously we don't have, um, I mean, my mom does help a lot. So that's nice to really have her help. But other than that, like we don't have a regular babysitter and we don't have daycare that those, that sort of thing. And so the evening, uh, and when the kids go to bed is really important to have that routine down. And so I've been trying to get that down. And then I realized that I was kind of expecting my husband to read my mind on what I wanted the routine to be. Uh, and then recently I was like, okay, no, I need to write this down and say, okay, dinner for the kids is this time. Like bath is going to be this time. Like dinner is going to, you know, or bedtime is going to be this time. And then I'll, I'll do, I'll do these. And then you do those and kind of like go team divide and go do it or whatever. Uh, But I think it is really important to have that conversation and, and really spell it out in the, that those clear terms so that your husband or significant other can see, Oh, wow. Like that, that's a lot. When you put it all on paper, like everything that has to be done in the evening to get the kids to bed, that's a lot of stuff. And if you're doing that by yourself and then you're just shouting random things for your husband to do. Like he probably doesn't understand. Like, I don't think that my husband literally like fully understood everything that I was trying to accomplish in the evening. But then once it's all laid out, it's just so easy. It's like, okay, wow, that's so easy. It's just the plans on paper. And or in this, in this um, instance, it was a text message. Like the plan <laughs> is, is written down <laughs> in a text message. And then it's so easy after that. It, yeah. It just was a lot easier. 
Um, yeah. Sorry, I just wanted to add on really quick. I think of uh, we think of my dad. My dad would be considered progressive for his time. He's no longer with us. He passed away some years ago, but my dad did everything. So I grew up really like in a kind of the other end of the spectrum. My mom would be not considered domesticated at all. Hates cooking. Doesn't really do it. I take after her a lot. I like cleaning. though. I find it cathartic. Um, but it's this idea that if we do not demand more of whoever we're with, um, and again, doesn't necessarily have to be a man, but whoever you're with and whoever's helping you out, then why would they meet um, demands when they're not even there. I think, you know, if you expect very little of someone, they're going to meet that expectation. And again, it's never perfect. Obviously there's, you know, but I just, I think like you said, communication really, you know, women have to talk, you know, they have to say out loud that they need help. And I think maybe there's even shame in that, that women can't even ask for help without being judged. <laughs> That's a really good point that you brought up that whether or not there's shame in asking for help, because I do, I haven't confirmed this and asked my friends directly, but I have a couple friends that I get the feeling that they feel like they're a failure if they ask for help. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's hundred percent what it is because I haven't asked because I don't feel like it's the right. right place to ask uh, <laughs> yet, but I just get the feeling that they feel like a failure if they would say, Hey, this is hard. Or like, I can't do this all. Whereas me, I'm like, like, I, <laughs> I, I'm not afraid to say like, Hey, I need a break. Like I've been, yeah. I've been watching the kids for eight hours, 10 hours a day. I'm like, Hey, I'm done. You know? I don't know, maybe yeah. that I just don't have any shame when it comes to that aspect. I don't know if that's good or bad. But also, uh, you know, one of my other good friends, she pointed out that it's it's not healthy when you don't listen to your body or your own needs. You know, if you're just pushing yourself and just saying, no, I can watch the kids. Like you watch the kids all day while your husband's working. Because I mean, right now I'm on maternity leave, um, technically, even though I'm kind of working. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so I'm like on maternity leave, but I'm like watching the kids all day. And then when my husband's done working, like, of course he needs a break too. Cause he was just working all day. So I, I get that too. Um, but so I, I try to allow for that too. So you can do things like work out those sorts of things. But on the other flip side of it, it's like, I've been working all day too. So you have to kind of balance that at the end of the day. And I mean, I don't feel guilty at all. Just saying like, I, I want a break or, you know, yeah. I need to do this, or I want to take a shower for, whatever and put on makeup if it makes me feel better you know even though my husband's like well we're not going anywhere and my husband's great he doesn't care if if I wear makeup I'm like well I like wearing it so sometimes I want to wear it (laughs) yeah I think I totally agree with that because I think no matter what if you're like you said you're a mom or not the expectation of how women look um, people on the outside are always commenting sometimes it's not always for the other person sometimes it's just about how you feel um, you know how you want your inside to match the outside and vice versa so um but I want, it's really interesting you said that because I um, found an article from Naperville Counseling and it talks about, um, you know, if women and especially mothers, you know, they don't take care of themselves, they're shamed and degraded at every level, um, that the fact that how that affects their own mental health can affect children in the long run too. Um, so this idea that, you know, what moms have to take care of themselves first. And I've seen it in my sister. She has like, she at one point ran herself on the ground and I'm like, if something happens to you, you know, that's, that's terrible for your daughter. That's terrible for my niece. And so, you know, women, moms, you have to take care of yourselves. However you, that needs to happen, whatever capacity, um, because your, you know, general well-being and mental health being well-being, excuse me. Um, you know, your kids depend upon that too. 
So I think, like you said, it's just really important that women are able to take care of themselves, um, you know, and no matter what that looks like. That's an important point that you mentioned that children recognize it too, and that it impacts them because in the long run, you're everything that you do as a mother, you're really teaching your children through example because children learn through example more than anything that you ever, that you could ever teach them verbally. Uh, that's actually something that uh, Chris Jablonski mentioned. She was a podcast guest in our episode on positive parenting. She mentioned that and forgot what episode number it is, but you should just, uh, if you're listening, go ahead and check out that episode because it was really good on that subject. But basically she said that children um, learn through your actions. And so if you're not taking care of yourself, uh, then your children, when they're adults or their moms, then they might not take care of themselves because they think that that that's the role model of motherhood that they're seeing, you know, they're seeing you constantly like doing, 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 and then um, not, not taking care of yourself or not making sure that you're healthy. And then they're going to do the same thing. So whether it's taking some time to go exercise uh, or in, in an example for me is just sitting down and eating. I remember when Kate was about a year old uh, that I I just felt like super run down and just not energetic. And it's because I wasn't even taking time to like sit down and like eat breakfast and lunch when I was watching Kate during the day. And because she was being in her toddler stage of just basically being like a little tyrant, like a lot of, ty- like a lot of to- toddlers are, right? Just demanding things. And I was just catering to every single little thing she wanted. And then finally, when I was just feeling so run down and I just realized, okay, I have to sit down and eat. Uh, but I explained it to her. I was just very verbal about it. I said, well, Kate, mama, you, you just ate now mama has to eat, you know? And that really sticks with kids because then she realized that. And then when she saw me eating, she's like, oh, okay, you're eating. And I remind her, say, okay, mom, this is mama's time to eat. So mama's sitting down and mama's eating. And then she would recognize that that's what I was doing. And then she respected that. And I, it just made me so proud that she realized that that's what I was doing after I told her several times. And then I would remind her uh, and that she, she recognized that I was taking care of myself. But again, so hopefully in the future, when she's a mom that she realized, okay, I remember when my mom sat down to eat besides just like always being a busy body and doing stuff. Um, But yeah, I mean, that, that is really important to make sure that, that you are giving that example um, instead of just running yourself into the ground. <laughs> there's no shame in that or there shouldn't yeah. be shame in that really. Absolutely. Um, I know we're, we're coming up on time here, but I wanted to just mention, well, um, we'll have probably, I want to give some links to, I know people, they don't always have the resources to help them. You know, they don't have like the family support. I think that's always key. If people don't have family support. It's like, well, how do I take care of myself and my kid at the same time right. um, to give some, you know, links maybe different people who need some extra support and love in that area. Um, because it's tough. It's, you know, it takes a village and we no longer utilize the village, uh, you know, mindset. So, yeah. But, yeah, that's a really important part. I would love to talk about that uh, in another episode, episode too, just the village of motherhood and how it's not really there anymore, because that is, I know what puts a lot of strain on a lot of moms when you don't have that community aspect. And again, looking historically at motherhood, just as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, even the hunter gatherer stage, I mean, even they had babysitters if you know for lack of better term right. allo parents of of people to watch the kids so the moms could go doing do, do during uh I can't talk right now <laughs> the lack of sleep <laughs> of a newborn so doing different things that's what I meant to say um 
Uh, be- before we close, I wanted to play like uh, this quote from Mean Girls, uh, just because I think it's super relatable and also really on topic. Hey, 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 how are my girlfriends? Hey, this is George. This is Katie. Hello, sweetheart. Hi. Welcome to our home. Just want you to know, if you need anything, don't be shy, okay? There are no rules in this house. I'm not like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. <laughs> right, Regina? That, to me, just really encapsulates a lot of shame surrounding motherhood, too, because we feel this pressure to not be a regular mom, but a cool mom, or we constantly think, oh, at least for me, when I first became a mom, oh, I'm a mom. Now I have to look the mom way or just be the mom way or whatever that is. And that right there's no nothing with it either. It's yeah, like exactly. So that's just another layer of shame when we don't feel like we live up to that cool mom standard or we feel like we're put in this category of being a certain type of mom. Yep. I, I completely agree. I, I won't dwell too long. I think the clip kind of speaks for itself. And anyone, any millennial who grew up watching Mean Girls back in high school knows that whole movie and that whole mother-daughter dynamic. So um, I, again, it speaks for itself. But um, yeah, no matter, I just, I think my only closing thought is no matter who you are, you know, what your background is, how you look or don't look, uh, you know, there's, every, there's so many other women who are just like you in the same boat. And um, you know, hopefully, you know, every mom can remember that if they wake up and just have an extra hard day. So. Exactly. So again, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the, the goal for this particular episode was just to show how motherhood has existed throughout the centuries and how it's changed over time and how it's evolved uh, just to help make you feel a little bit better, you know, reduce some mom guilt and don't feel as guilty if maybe you think you're not spending enough, as much time with your kids or you have interests outside of your kids. Um, or if you just want to be a stay-at-home mom and, you know, just constantly be there for your children, that's obviously like a really good uh, way to be a mom too. So it's just basically to highlight the different aspects of, um, motherhood and different ways to be a mother so that you can feel confident and happy in whichever motherhood path and journey that you choose. Yeah, completely agree. Um, by the way, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Uh, drag me in any time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks for putting up. I guess I just always pull you in just random different things. So I really appreciate you being such a trooper too. And always, uh, even doing this video, which I guess it, it kind of worked out. What, what's your verdict on the video? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a fan. I've been on video though, getting, you know, going to school and Zoom has been my life and other platforms. So I think I'm just broken of it now. I'm just whatever you guys want. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I guess we're kind of used to it now after 2020 with all the Zoom and everything. So true. Yeah. Well, great. Thanks for listening and we'll see you guys next time.